First Corinthians chapter one. Uh, we took time as he just introduced the book, this letter to the Corinthians last Sunday, just to look at the first three verses. I want to just dive right back into this text from the top of the passage. It says this in verse one. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just by way of getting our traction again here this morning, we recall that the city of Corinth was a city that was economically prosperous. It was a, 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 cent, a, a center of culture. It was a center of uh, Greek philosophy. Um, by day, economically fruitful and viable, and people made a good living in the city of Corinth. Uh, by night, on the other hand, the city was um, spiritually and morally bankrupt, uh, given over to sin and the desires of the flesh and carnality and worldliness. But where sin abounded, grace had abounded, and by a miracle of God on Paul's second missionary journey, a church was born in the city of Corinth, and Paul stayed there for 18 months just laying the foundation for the work that was happening there. And as the years went on and Paul moved on to other cities and new frontiers for the gospel of Jesus Christ, issues arose in the city of Corinth or in the church that was in Corinth. The spirit that was in that city uh, of, of prosperous by day and corrupt by night infiltrated and invaded uh, the church, and rather than the church establishing a beachhead for the gospel, the church began to look more and more like the culture that was happening around it. Uh, we recognize that happening today, even within our culture and in this day and age, where it's hard to tell where the world ends and the church begins, and where the church begins. And or, did I said that totally backwards? Didn't I? You know what I mean. <laughs> Where does the church begin and the world end? Where, where, is, where is the line? And rather than beating the church, Paul, Paul comes to the Corinthians and he begins to express his heart for them and to teach them. And he is going to continually, throughout this whole letter, remind them that the solution to their issues is the word of the cross and the message of Jesus Christ. The church has to learn to yield to the word of the cross. All of the church's supply and provision is realized through the word of the cross. Now, the Corinthian church was an extremely gifted church. Um, but they'd given into carnality. They were selling out to the spirit of the age. And, and Paul comes to them with a word of grace pointing this church to the cross, reminding them of their identity in Jesus, uh, the identity that was given to them in Jesus Christ because of the work of the cross. And so three issues of identity that, that, that Paul says to them. 
You're the church of God. You're the assembly of believers. You literally are called ones. The church of God. He says, you're those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Literally, you are a people who have been dedicated to the purposes of God, like an instrument in the temple. God has dedicated to you his purpose and his service. And you are called saints. That is the position ascribed to you. It's not something you earned. It's not something you achieved. When you bent your knee at the foot of the cross, you were handed that position. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship, into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you know, we've quickly gone through the first nine verses here, and if there's any question to what the theme of 1 Corinthians is, I've got to point it out to you. It's Jesus Christ our Lord. In, in those verses, Jesus Christ our Lord is mentioned eight times out of nine verses. And in the one verse he's not mentioned, he's referred to as him. Jesus Christ and serving Jesus is at the center of this letter. He is the central theme and the answer to a church that is given over to the spirit of the age, given over to the spirit of its city, given over to the spirit of its community. And in verse 4, Paul says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. You know, I just imagine Paul, he's, he's in Ephesus writing this letter. The reports are coming back about the worldliness in the Corinthian church, the carnality, the issues of sin that have infiltrated them. And as he writes this letter, he can't thank God for their righteousness because in and of themselves, they weren't very righteous. He, he can't thank God for their faith because they weren't very faithful. But he could say, I thank God for the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. Because if there was one thing that he had received and if there was one thing they needed, it was the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul realized the serious of the Corinthian situation. He, he wasn't thanking God for what they had done for themselves. But he was thanking God for what had been given to them. The gift of grace. God's unmerited favor. The, God's riches at Christ's expense. And I think as he wrote this, I just... I think there was a smile on his face and there was love in his heart as he thought about the people of God. I thank God for grace in your life. You haven't got it all together, but it's apparent God has been working in you. And he said this to them. At the moment, 
when grace was given to you in Jesus, at the moment that you were born again, at the moment that you were born of the Spirit, in every way God did this for you, he enriched you. He bestowed upon you riches. He furnished you with the riches of eternity. What an awesome thought. Financially prosperous community. No sense, you know, there's other churches that we read about in the New Testament that were struggling financially. And the Corinthian church actually steps in in the New Testament and helps out other struggling works. You know, uh, material wealth was not a problem for them. But Paul says this, God enriched you with every spiritual blessing. He's not talking about, you know, gold. Not talking about, you know, millions of dollars. But something that is of far more value, grace and spiritual gifts. He's referring to spiritual gifts here. God bestowed on you all spiritual gifts. Charisma. When he saved you, he gave you gifts. And they've affected your knowledge. They've affected your speech, Paul says. In particular, you know, when, when God saves us, you know this by experience. Your thinking begins to change and the way you speak begins to change. And that's a gift that comes from God. Uh, we were talking about this in our men's discipleship group. On, on Tuesday night, that one of the signs the scripture says of maturity in the Lord is being able to speak the truth in love. God affecting your speech. God gave you a gift so that you're, you could grow in the knowledge of him. You have the ability to grasp truth. That's an enrichment that comes from heaven. It's a spiritual gift. You know, Paul said this another place. As the word of Christ dwells in you richly, let your mind be occupied with the things of Jesus. You know, one of the things that happens as you get closer to Jesus is you want to talk about Jesus more. You, you want to think about him more. You want to think about his kingdom and the values of his kingdom. And you want to... Uh, share Jesus with other people. And that sort of change in a person validates the message that they have received. It's a confirmation that they have received Christ when their thinking is changed and their speech is changed. Paul's saying this, the spiritual gifts you've received are an indication that you've received grace. The unmerited favor of God. The Corinthian church here we're going to see in weeks to come was a church that functioned powerfully in spiritual gifts in many different ways. And those gifts were an indication of God working grace in their midst. You know, we tend to think this, this is what, at least this is my, you know, thinking that I wrestle with, you know, we think, oh, wow, look at them. They're moving in a spiritual gift. Whoa. God used them and they laid hands on someone and they were healed or, you know, something miraculous happened uh, through their ministry or they spoke a word of prophecy and we tend to go, oh, wow, they're really holy. Wow, they've arrived at some level. 
they've reached some achievement in the Lord, some place that I could only wish that I could attain. But the gifts of the Spirit and their operation are not dependent on us reaching some level of maturity, attaining some spiritual, you know, status. They're, they're simply a matter of us being a recipient of grace. And Paul says, you got enriched in every way. By God's grace, and man, they were carnal. They were worldly. But by God's grace, the gifts of the Spirit began to operate in their midst. And that means that ministry and spiritual gifts are not based on how we're doing, but rather they're based on dependency, total dependency upon what God wants to do in us and through us. This church was gifted and it was carnal. It's a crazy thought. I mean, you, you, you've probably seen that in people's lives over the years. If you function around churches and stuff like that, you think, really? Wow, they really, God uses them. And yet, Sometimes I wonder where they're at and what's going on in their lives. And, you know, this church was gifted and carnal, and that's why Paul will later tell them, you know, I could speak in the tongues of men and angels and do all this stuff, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. And so to a church that had strong points and weak points, Paul praised God for the, for the strong points. He said, look at the grace of God that's at work in your lives. And he expressed confidence that God would take care of the weak points. In verse 7 again, he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will be revealed to his church. It, there will be a revelation of Christ. He will appear. And Paul is saying this. There is a fuller knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming to his church. What an awesome thought. That now we only see in part. It's like we're looking through a glass dimly, but one day Christ will be revealed and we will behold him face to face. And until that time, Paul says, God will do this for us. He will sustain us. He will sustain us by his power. And his sustaining power that is at work in us is an assurance that we will see the revealed Christ. Think that, man, you know, we all, we all struggle. We all got stuff in our lives, you ever think, wow, I, there's times when we know that we're not holding on to God, but that God is holding on to us and carrying us, right? You know, it's that old poem about the footprints in the sand, God carrying us when we're weak. And Paul says that that sustaining power of God is the guarantee, it's the assurance of this, Christ is going to be revealed to you. Boy, when you feel weak, then you are strong. God will be revealed. 
And God will do this when he is revealed. He will sustain to the end and we will be found guiltless on the day of the Lord. You know, Paul was confident that here this this church who had all these worldly things going on in their lives, that they would be found guiltless on the day of the Lord. Why, Why could he be confident in that? What was the basis for his confidence? Was he confident in the character of the Corinthians? No, he wasn't. He was confident in the Lord. He was confident in the Lord. He says this in verse 9. God is faithful. I mean, you can just stop right there. Done. God is faithful. And verse 9 goes on. It continues, by whom you were called into fellowship, into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's confidence was grounded in this fact. God is faithful. People aren't always faithful. Men aren't always faithful. Believers aren't always faithful. The church isn't always faithful. But God is faithful. Even when life is entangled in problems, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with, our, with his, into fe- the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Interesting here. Uh, P- Paul said this in verse 1, I was called an apostle. You are called saints. Now he tells us about another calling. You're called into fellowship. You're called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what that word fellowship is, right? What is it? Koinonia. That's right. That's the word right there. Koinonia means, again, fellowship, association, community, communion, joint participation. And God says, you've been, we have koinonia with one another, but we've been called into another koinonia, and that is with the Son, Jesus Christ. That is the, the priceless privilege of the Christian life. Not just a privilege, I would say. It's a responsibility in a sense. You know, Jesus has put all of his resources at our disposal. All of the riches of heaven have been bestowed to us, given to us. And we, in return, put all of our resources at his disposal. That makes me smile. His resources, my resources. That's not an even scale, is it? When you think about your resources and what God has available for his resources. But that's community, common union, the coming together and sharing all things as equal. The scripture says we've been made heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Jesus. And I get everything he has and he's to get everything that, that I have. He gets Essentially this, he gets me because that's what he wants. Of this life that I call mine, we say to him, take control. It's yours. I surrender it to you. Koinonia means to have everything in common. Surrendering our lives and learning to rely on the resources and the enrichment that comes to us from heaven. And for a church to be effective, 
that's necessary that that happens. You know, I couldn't help but think about as I was just thinking about this passage about Enoch, who we read about in the Old Testament, who walked with God and then he was no more, the scripture says. And we can walk with Jesus. I, I read a great, a great story, got this little devotional that Lisa and I uh, love to read, and it's history of the Christian church. I've, I've put them out here at different times. I should order some more in. It just says, on this day in Christian history. And this one story that I read this week talked about uh, this young man who went on to be a missionary and had generations of effect, and, and how in his home there was a prayer closet, and his father would go into the prayer closet and he would pray for his children and he would, he would hear his father say this, Enoch walked with God, then why can't I? Enoch walked with God, why can't I? And I pray that my children would too. And we have been called, that is our calling to have koinonia, fellowship with Jesus. Not just to know, him, know about him, but to know him, to know him. And the sure cure for this Corinthian church and all of their problems was getting their eyes off of themselves and setting them on the right place, and that was on Jesus Christ. You know, I was thinking about marriage, being married. Lisa and I, we have all things in common. And, you know, we don't make those divisions. We, we share our interests. Uh, she's my best friend. But we actually say this in, in our marriage. Actually, you're my second best friend. Because we both want Christ to be our best friend. We want Jesus to have first place. But our relationship with Jesus is like a marriage. We've been called into communion with him. Koinonia. Fellowship. His interests become my interests. I'm concerned about his glory. My ambition is to know him. My ambition is not just to know about him, but to know him in intimacy. To walk with him. And his interest is in me. What a thought. God is interested in me. In my development in my growth, in my knowing him. And in that, in this relationship of koinonia, God has placed uh, at our disposal everything that we need. Everything that we need. And his desire is that I should be wholly his. You know, my thinking, our thinking as a church, as individuals should be this. I belong to Jesus and therefore I'm concerned about his glory and his name and my actions and my words are directed by my concern for his glory. That's my conviction. See, Paul here is saying a partnership with Jesus is the solution to every problem you face. Because you can depend on the faithfulness of God. When everyone else and everything else lets you down, God will not. Jesus will be faithful and he will walk with you in the midst of it. 
We're called into fellowship with him. And it's from that place that Paul begins to make some appeals to the Corinthian church. He says this in verse 10, his first appeal. I'm going to see this many times in Corinthians. I appeal to you, he says. So on this basis of koinonia with Jesus, he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. Jesus mentioned again. That all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else at all. And so right away, as Paul begins to address this issue of division with in the church, the exhortation to unity, the solution is Jesus. To be unified around Jesus. He says, I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and like I said, we're going to see over and over again, this letter emphasizes the lordship of Jesus because Paul is convinced that the answer to each and every controversy and failure in our lives is the word of the cross. He said, let there be no divisions among you. Be united in the same mind. That means be restored into right relationship. Be restored into the right condition with one another. It's interesting that the same term uh, is used in the gospels regarding the disciples when they were mending their nets. They were restoring them into the right condition. And the division that was in the church was the fruit of sin. The division that was in the church uh, was because the church had been invaded by the spirit of Corinth. And sin is like cancer and divisions in the church were being caused by believers associating themselves to or, or following different leaders of the church. They were, they were forming cliques around men. Church was divided in four ways here. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, that's Peter, and Christ. All of the first three really strong personalities. Paul, Apollos, and Peter, very strong personalities. Gifted ministers. Um, different focuses in their ministry. Uh, different emphasis, but all preaching Christ. All, all anointed. All powerful and having an effect for the kingdom of God in the, the first century. But they did not cause the division. Paul, Apollos, and Peter all had the same goal, and that was that Christ be preached. They were all contending for the faith. They were all maintaining the unity of the spirit by exalting the person of Jesus Christ. It was the members in this particular church that were causing issues of division and disunity. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. And then there was the super duper uber spiritual ones. 
I follow Jesus. I think they rolled their head. Well, I follow Christ. That was them, okay? They were probably the worst, the super spiritual group. Uh, you know, I would say this. Variety and diversity in the church is a beautiful thing. You know, I'm so thankful for the other churches in this community that preach Christ and him crucified. Aren't you? I'm so thankful that we're not it, that we're not the summit, that we're not the epoch, that there is other Bodies of Christ that God is using. Different emphasis, different focus, but Christ glorified, Christ preached, pointing people to the Jesus Christ. May God bless their churches. And if we have to suffer for it, that's okay. May the gospel move forward. You know what I mean? Like, may the gospel of Jesus Christ just move forward in Gibson's. And may he bless his church. You know, the problem is when we look down on those whom we consider different. When we become argumentative over issues that shouldn't really divide us just because different focuses or different emphasis. You know, think of the disciples themselves, the 12. There's a picture of diversity. You got zealots in there. You got a zealot who will stick a knife in any Roman he gets a chance to. And then you got a guy like Matthew who's a total sellout to his own people of Israel to be a tax collector. You, you, you just go through the list of the 12 and they come from every spectrum and every area and what unified them? Jesus. Jesus unified them. And I can't help but think of the picture of the disciples mending their nets. Their ability to catch fish was affected by the division in the net. And I can't help but draw the conclusion that a church divided and forming factions around men is a church that will be ineffective when it comes to fishing for men. And Paul says, guys, whoa, stop that stuff. Be united in Christ. Be united around the cross. And the church had forgot or had moved away from that central unifying effect of the cross. And the spirit of division that really was found in the city. It was found in the city because they were into cleverness and wisdom and intellectualism of the day and philosophy. And they formed factions around this philosophical teacher and this intellectual point of view and this and this and this. And they, they argued for their point. And that spirit of division had entered the church. And it was because they were failing to respond to the word of the cross. The church must yield to the word of the cross. Because the cross unites us. And thank God that we have diversity. Isn't that awesome? That we're different. That we're wired different. And, you know, Paul's line of questioning here reveals the foolishness of division. I, it's, it's funny. Is Christ divided, he says? Uh, no. No, Jesus isn't divided. Jesus is the very center. He's the hub. He is the central foundation to Christianity. He's the core of unity. Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, those are ridiculous questions that are meant to reveal that the church 
had bought into something that was foolish and they were being destroyed by division from the inside. Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you, verse 14, except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So apparently he wasn't, you know, collecting statistics and sending them to general office in Jerusalem. <laughs> and apparently some were using the issue of baptism to be a divisive subject which has been the case over the millennia of the church. And Paul says, for that reason, I'm glad that in Corinth, I didn't baptize many people. He says, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. What's Paul saying? He says, look at my, my ministry, the ministry to which God has called me is not to lead people to trust in human devices or religious rites. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what I'm called to preach. And that's what you are called to take hope in. Jesus Christ is the, the solution to every problem that plagues us. You know, I'm, I'm so amazed. I mean, side note, just coming to mind here is how many times when I chat with people and they have people in their lives that are freaking out because, oh, was the baby baptized? Were you baptized? And they put that focus there. And baptism's important. It's an ordinance of the church. But the solution is the cross. And Paul said, it's not a religious right that saves us. It's the message of the cross. And he says, we don't preach it with words of eloquent wisdom. You know, that, 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 that reference, again, is a reflection of the invasion of the, the, the city that had infiltrated the church. You know, they were so into cleverness, wisdom, intellectualism, um, and Paul says, look it, we don't rely on human words because when we rely on human words and that kind of preaching, intellectualism and wisdom and all these things, people are drawn to the preacher rather than the one whom the preacher should be proclaiming. He says, by doing so and leaning on such things, we nullify the cross of Christ. That's a pretty powerful message. He says, we empty the cross of its power when we rely on human devices to proclaim Christ. For me, as I think about that, I, I think, wow, as a church, are we invaded by the world and that value system? Or are we ruled by Christ and simply proclaiming the message of Jesus? And the secret of success for the church is the realization of life in Christ. That Jesus has called us into koinonia with himself. That God has called us into koinonia. That, that God, through his son Jesus, has shared his life with his church. Through being crucified. Through the word of the cross. 
And the faithful preaching of the cross will lead people to put their trust solely in what God has done for them through the cross of Christ. Not in the words of eloquent, the eloquent wisdom of man. See, I can't even say eloquent. <laughs> Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. You know, I think about the cross. It unites the church, but it divides the world, Paul says. Interesting that the very thing that unites us brings division in the world. And each of us falls into one of two categories. You fall to one side of the cross or to the other side of the cross, like the two thieves hanging beside Jesus. Both condemned to die. But one cried out and was saved by a word of grace. By a word of grace. You fall on either side of the cross. And for those who are perishing, the word of the cross is folly. Remember the one man who rejected Jesus as he hung on the cross? He mocked him. He mocked Jesus as he hung on the cross because to him, it was foolish. Why would I put my trust in that man hanging there? And when we tell people that Jesus loves them, we tell people that Jesus died in their place, we tell them that Jesus died for their sin, we tell them that Jesus offers them the free gift of eternal life, those who are perishing, don't get it because it's foolish. It just seems like utter foolishness to them. They're perishing because they're failing to be what God desires for them. They've, sin has mastered them. And they don't even know that they're rejecting the true source of happiness and, and power and that True hope and joy is found in a life surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. That other thief hanging on the cross to Jesus on the other side, rejected, condemned to death, spoke a word and Jesus saved them. Today you will be with me in paradise. Grace. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, when you open your heart to Jesus Christ, you were saved from the penalty of sin. Day by day, as the word of the cross affects your life and you walk with Jesus, the cross saves you from the power of sin. And when Jesus comes to take us to heaven, we will Totally be saved from the presence of sin. What an awesome thought. That's the cross. Saves us from the penalty of sin. Saves us from the power of sin. Saves us from the presence of sin. Salvation, in a sense, is progressive, right? There will be a revealing of Christ. We shall see him face to face. But the crazy thing is, is that there's a progressiveness to the experience of perishing as well, the scripture says eternally condemned. 
Saved in eternity, condemned for eternity. Increasing distance from God, total separation. And the word of the cross is it, you know, Paul said in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the cross because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believes. Because something happens. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. But when the message of the cross is taught, God's power manifests itself. And those who are perishing, who would stand mocking the cross, can be essentially, you know, shocked to their senses and made to come alive to Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus raised the dead and he does so spiritually too through the message of the cross. Born again. Through the word of the cross, we come to recognize our need for the Savior. Now, Paul says this in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Where's the wise man? Where's the debater? Where's the scribe? Where's the professor? Where's the psychiatrist? Where's the philosopher? Where's the psychologist? What have they done for culture? What have they done to set us uh, free from the things that bind us? God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. The cross mocks the values and, and the wisdom of this world. With the cross, Paul says, God destroyed the wisdom of the world. He set aside the wisdom of this world. He set aside the cleverness of the clever and God cannot be known through wisdom. He must be revealed by his spirit through the message of the cross. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe for Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and wisdom of God. You know, something amazing happens on, on Sundays or when God's people get together and the word of God is proclaimed. You know, we're reminded of the hope that we've been given. It actually begins to rise in you sometimes. You ever sense that? It's like, oh, yes, the gospel. It's awesome. It's not like just, it's not just your emotions being manipulated. It's the spirit of God by the word of God reminding you of the hope that you have in Christ. And it's restored. But all around this community this morning, people are going, man, what a waste of time. Could be out on the boat could be at the beach, could be doing all sorts of things outside and working in the yard. It's foolish. Why would I go to church? That's what fools do. Why would I be around preaching? That's foolish. But Paul says this, there's nothing foolish about the preaching of the word. Unless you're perishing. Unless you're perishing. And the difference between preaching that is in the power of God 
And that which is foolish is one simple rule. Does it proclaim Christ? That match it, does it proclaim the Christ that matches up with Scripture? Paul said, verse 22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The Jews stumbled at a crucified Christ. They were looking for the Messiah, a great uh, political leader who would lead them to military victory, who would bless them economically, who would revive the nation spiritually. And so when Jesus came on the scene and the rumors floated around about him and he was doing things, they asked him for a sign. Give us a sign. Are you the one who was to come? And he said this, a wicked and an adulterous generation asks for a sign and none will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jesus said, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. It's the resurrection. I will be raised from the dead. You know, it wasn't enough that he was already raising the dead and performing miracles and revival was happening and he was proving himself to be a servant of all. He said, I'll give you the sign of resurrection. But they stumbled over the cross before the resurrection. They got hung up on a savior hanging on a tree. The Greeks, who represent all Gentiles, seek wisdom. When Jesus was on trial and he was brought before Pilate and they were, Jesus was speaking to Pilate and he was being questioned by Pilate, Pilate questioned Jesus and he said, what is truth? And Jesus said, anyone who listens to me hears the voice of truth. And the, but the Greeks found the message of the cross to be too simple I would say, you know, much of culture still has that thinking. You know, forget signs, okay? The message of the cross is just way too simple for me. The cross doesn't deal with practical problems. Addiction, family dysfunctions, the complexities of our culture in a postmodern world. It's too simple. Man, if you've experienced the power of the cross, you know otherwise. The cross is the power to save. And the crucified Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews and it was foolishness to the Greeks. The religion of the Jew and the wisdom of the Greek. You know, those things will never set a man free from the despair that's in his heart until he knows Jesus Christ. You know, there was a Chinese man who spoke of his faith in Jesus and he said this. I was in a deep pit. I was sinking in the mire. I was helpless to, to, to deliver myself. And as I sunk, I looked up and I saw a shadow coming over the edge of the pit. And soon a venerable face looked over the brink and said to me, my son, I am Confucius, the father of your country. If you had only obeyed my teaching, you'd never be here. And then he passed by with a cheerless farewell and said, if you ever get out of this, remember to obey my teaching. But that did not save me and I sank deeper into the mire. 
Then Buddha came along and he looked over the edge of the pit and he cried, my son, just count it all as nothing. Enter into rest. Fold your arms and retire within yourself and you will find nirvana. The peace that you were looking for. And I cried to him, Father Buddha, if you will only get me out of this pit, I would be glad to do so. I, I, I could follow your instructions easily if I was at the place where you are. But how can I rest in this awful place? And he said, Buddha passed on and left me in despair. Then another face appeared. It was the face of a man beaming with kindness and bearing the marks of sorrow. He did not linger a moment, but he leaped down into the pit by my side and he threw his arms around me. He lifted me out of the mire and he brought me to the solid ground above. He did not bid me farewell, but he took off my filthy garments and he put new robes on me and he invited me to follow him saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's why I became a Christian, he said. It's because Jesus did not come to me with theories and speculations, but with practical help in my time of need. The message of the cross. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. Because the barrier to the cross in our lives is our own pride. The pride of our own hearts is the barrier that stops the cross. What Paul says in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Man, I just said thank you for the cross. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than than men. And Lord, thank you for the cross that you came into the muck and the mire to pull us out. Paul says this, verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You know, the same is true. I'd invite you just to look around this morning. We don't want to pick on each other. You know, but come on, let's be realistic here. Not many noble, not many powerful, not many, you know, top 50 Canadians, not many top 10 wealthiest. Not that he doesn't say that they're in there somewhere. He doesn't eliminate those folks, but he just says, let's consider our calling. Not many of us come from that kind of place because God majors in calling average folks. Simple people. Doesn't mean the nobles and the movie stars don't get saved though. Thank the Lord. It's just that God does not place his focus on the who's who's or the values of human wisdom. Verse 27. Here's a description of you and I. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in his presence. See, the Lord uses weak things of the flesh so that only he gets the credit. You know, I have to live with myself for seven days a week. Do you ever feel like that? Thank God that in our weakness, Christ is strong. He uses the foolish things and the weak things of the earth so that he gets the glory. Verse 30. Wrap it up quick here. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Some translations, some of yours might say, are from Christ Jesus. It's kind of, it's dual. It's saying both things. Because of him, you are in or from Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Wisdom comes from God. Wisdom is in the Lord, Paul says, and wisdom is found in a person, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us. God's wisdom is in and from Jesus, who is uh, right, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is everything that we need. Look at that again, actually. I found it, well, anyway, so don't forget it. Who began to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness means this, that somehow God is able to take this broken, twisted, messed up, sinful, defeated, immoral life and conform it to the image of his son. God does that by imparting to us, attributing to us, we say imputing to us the work of the cross. The righteous life of Jesus is given to us as a gift of grace so that he makes the crooked life straight and he makes the broken life whole and he manifests his strength in our weakness. Not only is the righteousness of Jesus imparted to you and I, but the life of Jesus is imparted to us. Righteousness imparted to us, life imparted to us. That's sanctification. I'm separated to him. You and I are separated for his service and he imparts his life, his power to us so that our lives slowly and increasingly look more like his. It's a slow process. We know that. Like I said earlier, because we have to live with ourselves seven days a week. We wish it was quicker. The third word is redemption, which refers to that day when the Lord appears and we find ourselves in his presence. When we are fully redeemed, redemption is the fulfillment and the completion of the purposes of God in our lives. And so righteousness puts us back into the will of God. Sanctification makes us more like Jesus day by day. And redemption speaks of the day when we will be found faultless, guiltless in the presence of God. And it is all imparted to us on the basis of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says uh, that the message of the cross leads us to, well, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. Let those who boast, boast in the Lord. He actually references Jeremiah 23, verse 24. I'm going to turn there. 
Jeremiah 23, verse 24. I'm going to get you to turn there too. Right a center in your Bible. Sorry, chapter 9, verse 23. I said 23. Thus says the Lord, verse 23, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Yahweh, Jehovah. As Paul is making this conclusion... Let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. He is applying it to Jesus Christ. And he's actually saying this. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is, Jeho- he is pointing to Jesus as the great I am. Boy, isn't the gospel awesome? Aren't you thankful that God takes weak, broken things and he makes them whole? That he imparts his strength so that we can live for him. And the word of the cross May we cling to it increasingly. Worship team, come join us.